You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Hello, my name is Ike Yanachar. I'm editor of Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin. Welcome to the DTB podcast on swine flu. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Caldwell, GP from East Yorkshire. Hello. And Dr. Madot Nasadegi, uh, a consultant infectious disease specialist in London. Hello. Both Madot and Paul are members of DTB's editorial board. Swine flu is clearly a, a very fraught topic for many people at the moment, both professionals and uh, patients. One of the things which has exercised people is the current policy in relation to the use of Tamiflu, Oseltamivir. I want to start by asking you, uh, Madod, what, what, what is it that we know about the effects of Oseltamivir? What does it actually do? What's it been proven to do? Well, um, Oseltamivir, uh, that's Tamiflu, and uh, Zanamivir, that's Relenza, are neuraminidase inhibitors uh, which are licensed for the treatment uh, and prophylaxis of flu. Um, that's uh, at least seasonal flu because the clinical trials that were conducted with these drugs showed that they were effective in uh, significantly reducing uh, the transmission of infection when used as chemoprophylaxis and in treatment studies had a very modest treatment effect. In general, reducing the duration of illness by about 24 to 36 hours. Okay, so that's fact. That's what we know about what those particular drugs do. What about how they're being actually used in the present pandemic? How does that marry with what we know about the evidence of their efficacy? Well, I guess the first obvious thing to say is that these drugs have never been tested in the context of pandemic influenza. But it's the nature of an emerging infectious diseases that it's unlikely we can accrue enough data about the efficacy of a treatment strategy or a policy uh, until we, we get into the thick of the uh, epidemic or pandemic. So there's a, there's a disparity, clearly, between, therefore, what, what's known in terms of hard efficacy and, and how they're being used at the moment. That's right. And uh, whilst that's true, that is the nature of an emerging infectious sure. diseases. I just want to ask you, Paul, I mean, your understanding of, of, of Tamiflu and the basis on which you and your colleagues have been asked to use it or, or consider it in the present pandemic, does that fit with your understanding in terms of the efficacy and, the, the, and how it's being used, the disparity between those two? I think from my perspective, it, it, it's difficult because... You read the data and all that, uh, that comes out from the Department of Health, WHO and the Royal College, and the message comes across that this is a very useful, useful drug, and patients and even more so are getting the same sort of message. But when you look a bit deeper into the actual documents, and it has to be said that the Department of Health's documents, documentation is actually very good. I don't think we can criticise them on that one. The, the evidence efficacy isn't particularly there. Um, you've got this strange situation that we're extrapolating from studies um, to a pandemic. Now, that may be a reasonable thing, as it's not happened before, but extrapolations can also be invidious. We simply don't know whether it's going to work. Mm. And the other problem from my point of view about all this is that if it is of such relatively low efficacy, to take an example, it's comparable with um, treating... Um, sore throat of antibiotics, you know, you know, in terms of numbers needed to treat, then 
you don't we don't normally advise um, treating sore throats ubiquitously with antibiotics, and yet we seem to be doing advising the same um, um, with, for uh, for pandemic flu. So I mean so that, uh, that raises well. A, well that raises an interesting question. We've established uh, that that there is a lack of efficacy for the pandemic situation. Mm. So the next question is, well, what is the justification for the current widespread use in the UK? What is the basis for that? And is that reasonable based on what we know and what we, what we fear? Maddie? Yes. Uh, so um, I think it's reasonable to rehearse what the objectives of the use of Tamiflu in the current pandemic were uh, and still are, I think. We know from clinical trial data in the context of seasonal flu that it reduces transmission rates, and therefore it might have reduced the transmission of infection at the beginning of the pandemic. That really hasn't been borne out, and the virus uh, has been able to uh, establish itself in a, in a pandemic infection, uh, despite pretty liberal use of oseltamivir at but, the beginning. But what you seem to be saying is that that was a reasonable thing to do. It was I a think so, thing. on the basis of the uh, evidence that was available with seasonal flu. Paul, do you have a view on that? It may be a reasonable thing to do, but what's happened in the way that the publicity has come over is that the data has effectively been, not massaged, but it's, it's the impression coming over that Tamiflu really is a must, uh, is a must-have drug to, to for the patients. What would you say? You say that, but what evidence would you cite of that? I mean, is that really what's being said? Well, you, you look at just look at all the guidelines. Um, they fairly firmly point in all the directions that if you have um, a illness which is compatible with some form of pandemic flu, and there are doubts about the clinical, you know, the diagnosis over the telephone about these, then then consider a Tamiflu and indeed you can pretty well get it online um, with just uh, saying that you've got a fever and a sore throat and indeed I had several patients do that um, so it doesn't fit very well it, the message is is that Tamiflu is a bet is to patients is a better bet than doing the things that the Department of Health rightly recommends of staying at home uh, mucking through it, paracetamol and washing hands to try and prevent transmission. Those messages aren't coming over anything like as strongly as the one that you've got to go and get this drug. Okay. So, I mean, let's just let's just push the issue of, of why we're in the position that widespread use has been advocated in the, in the UK. You, you started off by saying about the failure to contain the, the virus. Um, but were there any potential benefits of, of, of having this widespread use? Well, when we move beyond the prevention phase, uh, I think, then actually the evidence is pretty ropey, as, uh, as Paul suggests, about its ongoing use in a treatment phase. The objectives here would be to reduce flu-related deaths and to reduce the burdens on the society by reducing duration of illness at a population level and perhaps increasing public confidence that in this scenario there are treatments available and that the world can continue and people's lives can continue because there are strategies to manage the pandemic. You think that's an important thing, do you? Even if the thing you're offering is of unproven efficacy and possibly carries unwanted effects? Well, I think confidence is an important thing, yes. Uh, that but, doesn't... But, but you've heard Paul's, um, what Paul was saying, which is, in a sense, that confidence has been bought on the basis of poor evidence, really. No, I agree. That nonetheless wasn't a, probably an objective uh, of this policy and I don't necessarily think it's appropriate to to be dishonest about that confidence. I agree entirely that actually the evidence on the basis of previous experience with Tamiflu 
doesn't necessarily give strong support for the policy that, that in this country we've, uh, we've decided to deploy. And I also agree completely that actually the other strategies in the policy against flu are actually much more important, in particular uh, trying to reduce onward transmission, because that yeah. will uh, ultimately be the, the, the mechanism by which the pandemic peters out. I haven't heard you say, Madal, anything which actually says that you think the policy was a bad idea. Is that, am I, I'm not representing you by saying that. I think it's extremely difficult, uh, without data or experience, to be able to categorically say the policy is either right or wrong. And I think that we will learn, obviously, from this exercise as to whether this was the best way to deal with the situation or not. But I think we can legitimately criticise the uh, message that was portrayed uh, in this policy. Okay, well, well, just before we go on to that, let me ask Paul the same question. I mean, do you think it was a, a reasonable policy? I think it's a policy that could not not have been done. And I think that possibly is why the way the political aspect of it is. The government is faced, um, in the worst-case scenario, with a very difficult social problem. Um, we shouldn't lose sight of that one. And let's and we have to we have to face the fact that governments um, have to be seen to act. And if there is something which is uh, has some reasonable evidence of some degree of efficacy, they would be criticised if they did not do this. So let me be clear. So even despite what you said about the evidence being weak or non-existent, you're not saying that actually it was a bad thing to do yeah. in terms of advocating widespread use in the UK. That I, I think that's that's true, but I think it could have been put should, or could and should be put over in a different way. Um, the problem. Uh, I think about the the policy is the certainty with which um, Tamiflu is being pushed on to patients and uh, the certainty which you get. Most GPs and most people I know and doctors I know have got a lot of doubts about the efficacy and the considerable side effects um, of Tamiflu and um, and it's normal policy for and quite rightly for doctors to make it to allow patients to make an informed consent about the treatment particularly of drug treatment uh, the pros and cons and what have you and this sort of policy really goes against that so I'm not sure that patients are getting a proper informed consent about their about the therapy that's being offered. Any comment on that? Matt? No I agree that uh, my own personal view would be that it would be best to have an honest communication of the evidence with that drives policy and mm -hmm. that way yeah. uh, we can all be stakeholders in the, in the approach that, that we agree on and drive it forward together. So you started off, I think, before I interrupted you, saying that, or, or hinting that, that things could have communicated better. What would you specifically have wanted? Well, to have all the time again, I think uh, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a difficult question, and but since you put me on the spot, um, I think that I would have. Uh, we obviously had a little bit of time before the pandemic came to the U or before the infection uh, spread within the UK. Uh, and I think I would have I would have liked to have seen a policy that set out very widespread use uh, in the prevention phase uh, of this infection. Uh, once, however, the, the, the infection had, had taken grip in the population and was spreading very quickly, then I think I would have paused for breath. And given that by that stage we had information that this wasn't a particularly virulent infection that didn't associate with high mortality rates, then... Uh, I would have been much more reserved about the use of Tamiflu in the UK, as I have to say, have more international bodies been. So the WHO recommendations, for example, 
clearly say that Tamiflu are not is not necessary for the treatment of influenza in otherwise healthy people, and they identify high-risk groups. And I think that's, that seems like a, a more measured and proportional approach to, uh, to the use of antivirals than the approach we've taken here. There are obviously theoretical risks of this policy that, that are also worth rehearsing and I think should have been communicated uh, you know, at the outset of, of setting out this policy, which are that we could potentially increase resistance to this drug as the pandemic uh, develops. Um, we could run out of uh, antiviral treatment should the virus become more virulent and actually this drug might then be a useful treatment to reduce flu-related deaths. And there are issues related to cost disruption to the NHS. But I think actually an important concern has been that uh, in the context of a flu pandemic, then many febrile illnesses that have nothing to do with flu are first assessed and treated for flu. And as a result, other infectious diseases which carry a much greater morbidity and mortality burden have a delay in their diagnosis. So I think that's the major risk, actually, that this particular policy has generated. So we've got a policy which you both agreed, I think, was in some senses inevitable. Something had to be done, and this mm. seemed to be the only thing to be done. Um, but one which was communicated perhaps badly, or, or at least it was open to, to miscommunication. Is that reasonable? Yes, I, th I think that's true. Um, and again, coming into the Tamiflu itself, this drug does have side effects, um, and although the quoted studies show relatively low incident side effects, um, rarely serious, although that can be the case, um, those are in very selected studies. When it's now out in the general population, anecdotally, I'm seeing quite a few people complaining of quite bad side effects of Tamiflu, particularly gut upset and headache. Mm. <laughs> that really hasn't been communicated well. Okay. So clearly we're not the only country in the world who has a swine flu pandemic by definition. What are other countries in the world doing and can we learn from them? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, obviously our policy in part is shaped by the uh, structure of healthcare provision that we have and therefore may not be directly comparable to uh, other countries. Um, however, by and large, in other countries where Tamiflu is widely uh, available, there has not been the um, access, the, such ready access to Tamiflu as we have engineered here. And uh, most other places, as far as I'm aware, follow the WHO guidelines to consider antivirals, uh, but not necessarily that everyone with flu or presumed flu should be given antivirals. But doesn't that take us back to the point I asked you about earlier, which is to say... Um, was the policy reasonable? Why is it reasonable for us and not for the rest of the world? Well, uh, I don't think we can categorically say that one policy is right and the other policy is wrong. Okay. Uh, I think we have to take a view, come off the fence and, and, and generate a, a policy. I think the real problem here is that we haven't necessarily communicated the reasons for uh, our particular approach clearly or uh, transparently or if you like honestly we, we shouldn't just see this in a in a clinical perspective no. the whole history of pandemic flu is very much um, a political one as well is that um, since they're unlike the previous ones now there are drugs and vaccines which are of, of debatable efficacy um, the government cannot seem not to be doing something if they're available 
Uh, and if they didn't buy Tamiflu and put it out, they would be criticised. But if they suddenly find that they, the Tamiflu stays in the warehouse and they bought, what, 50 million quids worth of it or something like that, then at the end, when it's all washed up, um, at the end of the day, they would be criticised for that. But how, how are other developing countries managing that to ride that particular difficult horse? They're not giving it away, as Maddie said, necessarily in the way we are. Well, it's a, isn't it a function that we are a nationalised health service uh, and therefore public health strategy uh, can be very strongly directed at the centre? That's not the case in most other health se- healthcare systems. That's probably the advantage of the NHS compared to other healthcare systems for, for managing a pandemic. And although one can... Um, tilt at the Department of Health. In fact, its documentation is actually very, very good and it's worth actually reading. I suppose the next big issue in terms of swine flu, everybody's talking about at least, is is the introduction of a vaccine against uh, swine flu. Um, Do you have any concerns about that, Paul? The only concern I've got is that there's a lot of publicity about and suspicion about vaccination and recent things in the in the media have shown that a lot of um, people um, are going to reject the vaccine um, which is probably a, um, or the much the best way to do something active about the pandemic and that contrasts poorly with the certainty which many people want Tamiflu which is a doubtful efficacy for so instance I, I, mean, I, I personally am going to want to have I'm going to have swine flu vaccine should it be shown to be um, both safe and uh, effective but I've just had um, what I think was swine flu and didn't take Tamiflu. So you're saying that you, you have no personal worries, you don't, you don't echo the, the, the prevalent worries that you're referring to in terms of the vaccine being dangerous or, or unhelpful or ineffective, well, but, but you are worried that other people think it might be all of those things. Absolutely. I think we have to wait for the, for the vaccine to be reasonably well evaluated um, before we can make any comment on that. And of course, dangerous and side effects depends on um, where you're coming from. Sure, sure. Maddie, your views on... I, I agree that from an efficacy point of view, the vaccine is going to have a much greater impact than Tamiflu and therefore subject to evaluation of its safety and other regulatory approvals, I think that there should be a strong message that being vaccinated is important and that it's a much better strategy to uh, contain this problem than is uh, uh, the use of Tamiflu. But that sounds all very well, what, what you've both said, but we've just spent a long time talking about open and honest communication Mm. there will be issues clearly with a vaccine that some people will be harmed by a vaccine do we just ignore that do we just pretend that the greater good is served by everybody in the in the target groups being vaccinated and well if a few people are harmed by it so what how do how do we address what is clearly a real issue with people being suspicious and worried about the vaccine being perhaps more dangerous than Tamiflu? i think the answer to that is we simply don't know Um, we vaccinate um, again, seasonal flu every single year, um, almost uh, between 20 and 25% of the population gets it. They are at the at-risk group. There's no reason to think um, uh, per se that a swine flu vaccine will be any more dangerous or any less um, effective than the seasonal flu, even possibly even more so. Um, and uh, why the fuss? Is it because I don't know where do these scares come from? Um, when you get where you see here publicity of, um, that possibly one in three nurses are going to refuse the vaccine, 
um, and possibly one in four GPs as well. You know, what, we, what are we doing here? Thanks, Paul and Madod. To read DTB's editorial on Tamiflu, or Sultamavir, please go to our website, dtb.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.